from Toe the Wet Sprocket, and you're listening to Reliving My Youth with Noel Fogelman. And welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. We're going to continue our 90s alternative series with Dean Dinning, founding member and lead bassist of Toe the Wet Sprocket. Toe the Wet Sprocket had so many hits in the 90s. Walk on the Ocean, All I Want, Good Intentions, to name a few. We talk about all of that, including how the band got its start, why it broke up. They released their latest album, or I should say their last album, in 2013, New Constellation, they went the Kickstarter route and they set records. We talk about that. We talk about how they got their name and a question that's been bugging me for years. I asked Dean about towards the end. Don't want to spoil it right now. But before we get to Dean, I just want to thank everyone who made the Robin Wilson podcast from a couple weeks ago, the most listened to in the show's one year history. Thanks again. Be sure to check out all the other shows we have. Brian Van der Ark of The Burr Pipe is also in the 90s Alternative series. Check him out. And here's Dean. And helping me relive my youth today is Dean Dinning. Dean, how are you today? I'm feeling great. Very youthful, thank you. Ah, great. Great to hear. Um, before we get into, like, you know, the band, the band name and everything like that, uh, I just want to focus on you for a second. Uh, you came from a pretty musical family, correct? Yes, I did. Uh, my, um, it kind of started with my, my dad's uh, sisters a really long time ago, back in the 1940s, 30s and 40s. Uh, they had a singing trio, uh, an act like, um, like the Andrews sisters, Close Harmony. And uh, my dad was actually their manager, but those are my three aunts on my dad's side. And he, he took them to Chicago and got them signed to NBC Radio, and they performed on a, a show called the National Barn Dance, and they made records and uh, sang with people like Bing Crosby and made movies and all kinds of stuff like that. And then my uncle Mark Dinning had a number one hit in 1960 with a song called Teen Angel, which one of the one of the Dinning sisters actually wrote, uh, Jean. And um, and then there was uh, I had another my aunt Dolores. She was on the uh, television show Hee Haw uh, out of Nashville for its entire run. She was also part of a very successful uh, backup group called the Nashville Edition. And then, uh, then I found myself uh, uh, in this um, in the 1980s and 90s, and uh, uh, with all of this uh, this past to live up to. So I got into the music business myself and, and did the Toad thing. Was there any pressure, or was this kind of like something you wanted to do, not kind of like <laughs> set by the family? <laughs> um, you know, it was pretty much. Um, you know, there might have been more pressure the other way. My, my parents were very big on having a plan B because uh, they knew how iffy the music business can be. Um, so I always had a plan B. I went to college. I was an English major and uh, did the whole thing. And um, But, you know, the, the band ended up taking off. Um, nobody knew that we would still be doing it. Uh, all these years later or even, you know, two or three years later when we started. Uh, you know, nothing is 
Nothing's for sure. Um, just because you get a record deal doesn't mean that you keep a record deal or, or that you get successful or, or, or have hit songs on the radio or any of that kind of stuff. So uh, we were just very fortunate that it all worked out. Yeah, and you, your original, I mean, you played a bunch of instruments, piano, I, I, I believe. You also started with guitar. How did you uh, transform to the bass? You know, I was originally the keyboard player in Toad, and that's why they um, that's why they got me to come in and play because they had done some demos, uh, and Glenn had uh, played a lot of keyboard parts on the demos, and they wanted someone to cover those live. And so I was originally the keyboard player, and then when we started up working uh, on new songs um, that didn't have keyboard parts already established, um, there was a song that just didn't seem to want a keyboard part, and I had a bass because. My dad had bought me a Fender Precision bass when I was in high school. Um, I wanted electric guitar, and my dad said, um, son, uh, there are 10 guitar players out there for every bass player who can sing. Hmm. Um, if, you know, so if you learn how to play the bass and sing, you'll always have a gig. So, you know, there was some good advice, though, even, even though, you know, they, they didn't exactly push me uh, into this as a career. Um, they definitely steered me uh, in the right direction along the way. Um, and so I, I learned how to play the bass, um, just kind of by, by necessity, there was going to be nothing for me to do on this, uh, on this song we were working on, unless I, I came up with a bass part and I came up with a great bass part and never looked back. That's great. Yeah. You saw the opportunity, you took it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So who were some of like your influences growing up? Like, but besides your family, of course. Oh gosh, you know, I, I had a, an older brother who's seven years older than me, um, and in many ways, your my tastes were influenced by his record collection. Uh, a lot of Elton John, um, the Eagles, and, and you know, so what was on the on the radio in the 1970s? It was a, it was a really uh, a pretty great time. I mean, even country songs were were having a lot of crossover success and, and getting played uh, on our local radio station. And and um, there was a lot of Eagles and definitely the Beatles and. And then um, my next-door neighbor turned me on to the Electric Light Orchestra, okay. the Steve Miller Band, and all kinds of, you know, Genesis and stuff like that. So I just had a pretty, you know, wide variety of stuff. And then, of course, in high school, I got way into, like, Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and just went full metal for a while. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I'd say my, my older brother's record collection was the biggest influence on, on myself musically i would uh i would hear those songs and then i would pick them out by ear on the piano especially elton john and stuff like that it was it was very rewarding to be able to sit down and play those songs yeah then how did um you and the guys meet well i have i've known the guys um i met todd the uh, lead guitar player right. when i was in uh math class in junior high school he sat right next to me. We did not know each other until that time. He had met Randy, uh, the drummer, since they had been four years old. I think they went to the same church. And so the three of us were all in the same class, um, junior high all the way up through high school. Um, we graduated together in 1985. And uh, Glenn was a freshman in 1985, and we were all doing performing arts and theater and stuff like that. And, and, and Glenn was this little kid who who, you know, would hang out and scribble lyrics uh, in a notebook, and, and he was right, you know, he, he was writing songs, you know, even then. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Todd and Glenn just uh, started writing together, and then that's, that's how we all, 
that's how we all ended up together. Really, we were we were cast in a, uh, a couple of plays that we were all in, and, and we just um, found that we uh, had a lot of uh, common musical interests. And and uh, uh, you know, one guy had a guitar, another person had a had a, had a bass, and, and somebody had a keyboard, and away we went. And then you found someone's garage, right? And this just started jamming. <laughs> Pretty much uh, Randy's basement. He had his his bedroom was in the basement of his parents' house, and uh, and so we could practice there as much as we wanted, and it wouldn't bother anybody. Right. And I know you've been asked this question a ton of times. I know the name comes from Monty Python, but uh, how did you decide to come up with that name? Well, I wouldn't call it a decision. Right. It's kind of a thing that we did. Uh, as a joke, and then we never changed it. I just wanted to see it in print once. We didn't have a name. We were really bad at deciding on what we wanted to call ourselves. Uh, and so when we couldn't come up with something to put in the paper, when we had our first gig and the owner of the club said, you know, what do you want me to put in the listing? Um, we just said, oh, we'll put Toad the Wet Sprocket. You know, it'll be funny. And then the name just kind of stuck, and, and people started calling us Toad, and uh, we've been Toad ever since. There would, never was any other name. Um, we thought we should change it, but we never actually took any steps to change it. Um, so uh, it's worked well enough. I mean, it, it, we end up on a list of the 10 worst band names about once or twice a year, and that's pretty publicity, so that, that works out well. Exactly. I mean, it's 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 unique. So you know, it's it, it definitely draws the attention. So that's definitely uh, a good thing. <laughs> it's not as unique as it was. I mean, now there are oh, bands yeah. like uh, right. like Young the Giant. Yeah, exactly. And and Cage the Elephant. Yeah. And all and all you got to do is put the word wet in there, and you get uh, Cage the Wet Elephant right. or Young the Wet Giant. It's not it's not that far off. It's just sort of like junk sculpture, random random words. You know, ours actually has an origin. I don't know what theirs is, but, um, you know, Eric Idle uh, uh, was wonderful enough to um, to write that in a sketch called uh, Rock Notes that he originally did on a show called Rutland Weekend Television. Um, uh, and I heard it on Monty Python's contractual obligation album. I didn't realize uh, that Monty Python was like, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, such a, a great... Uh, you know, it, it speaks to nerds. Uh, I guess is what is what it does. Um, everybody uh, I knew loved Monty Python, and um, it's hard explaining the name to uh, a bunch of bikers in a bar <laughs> in uh, Oklahoma. But most people, most people seem to like it. Yeah. Did you receive like any feedback from you know John Cleese, Eric Idle about the name? Uh, yes, we. Um, Let's see. How did it exactly work out? We um, we heard Eric Idle had said either on a on a radio interview or something. He said, "No, he wrote us a letter. That's what it was. He wrote us a letter and he said um, uh, that he had been driving on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles and he was listening to the radio and uh, one of our songs was playing and at the end the DJ said that was Toad the Wet Sprocket with Walk on the Ocean." And he said that he nearly drove his car off the road. <laughs> he couldn't believe that anyone had used that name. That he, you know, he had specifically concocted it to be the worst name ever, uh, that, so that no one would ever use it. Um, and so he sent us this lovely uh, letter um, on Monty Python stationery. It was great. And um, 
and we sent him a gold record with his name on it. And he, uh, you know, he has said some lovely things about us over the years. Uh, people have said to him, hey, uh, you know, you should go after those guys for some royalties. And he's been like, you know what, they've been kind, and, you know, they, they gave me a gold record, and it's just, everybody, we're all cool with each other. That's, that's great, and it brings also more attention to Monty Python as well. I think it does. Yeah, so you guys were still in high school when you released your first album, right? We were in college. Okay. Uh, Glenn, uh, Glenn tested out of high school early um, because we had gotten a record deal, um, honestly, and he was taking classes at the college uh, by that time anyway. Um, but we, we made our first album independently, uh, our first two actually, um, and put the first one, Blood and Circus, out on cassette, uh, locally. And, um, that was what first started to get us some attention from record labels. Uh, a guy named Nick Terzo at ASCAP, uh, the uh, performing rights organization in Los Angeles. Uh, he dubbed off copies and gave it to everyone in the music industry in LA that he knew. And before long, the, uh, our manager's phone was kind of ringing off the hook because we, we were selling these things and we, we sold 500, you know, very quickly and ordered another 500 cassettes and sold those out almost just as fast. So uh, we had originally made the album because our friends weren't old enough to get into the clubs that we were playing. Hmm. So uh, we wanted them to be able to hear our music and that seemed like a, a good way to do it. Um, so yeah, it wasn't released when we were in high school, but shortly after. Um, yeah, those songs were very, very early, and a lot of them were written, uh, you know, uh, late at night or, or in parents' houses when they were on vacation, and, and uh, yeah, fun times. Yeah. You, you released on Columbia Records, Fear, and uh, is it true that you negotiated not to have an, take an advance from them so you can kind of have creative control over that album? Yeah, we traded creative control for, um, uh, instead of getting, you know, there were people that wanted to give us a lot of money up front, um, but we really wanted to be able to just make our albums and turn them in and, and not have anyone breathing down our necks about, you know, making sure that we had something that played on the radio or, um, or any other kind of, you know, decisions that would be made along the way, like about producers or, or how we were going to make the record and, and you know, both Fear and Dulcinea, we consciously made those records not in Los Angeles. We made Fear in uh, Reno, Nevada at a live-in studio called Granny's House in the middle of winter. And then um, Dulcinea we made up in Marin County at a place called The Site. So um, we, we wanted to, we tried to be as independent as possible within the major label uh, structure with a huge you know, company like Columbia behind us. But they were, they were very good about it. Columbia, out of all the meetings we took, they were the one label when we said that we wanted to release Red and Circus and Pale exactly how we had made them. Um, they were the only label that didn't uh, that, that didn't balk at that. They, they thought that that was a good plan and that we should get out on the road and start building a live following and that we would release those two albums six months apart uh, on Columbia and then, and then make our first album for the, for the label, which was Fear. Um, so, yeah, uh, we, uh, we had a lot of creative control and, um, and it, I think it worked out well. And back then it was a lot, uh, people gave you a lot more time to fail. Uh, we just did that mainly because we didn't want someone to look at their balance sheet and see that they were so far in the hole 
that they would drop us before we had a chance to really prove ourselves. So um, to eliminate that, we, we just didn't take very much money up front. Yeah. Um, was that kind of hard to like avoid? I mean, because... I mean, young, I'm sure, I don't know if you guys had money or not, but, you know, to turn down some money like that, I mean, a lot of bands don't do that. Yeah, it was. I mean, but we also had a publishing deal at the time, and um, so, we, you know, we, we got by. Right. And we were out on the road most of the time. We weren't making any money on the road, but most of us were still living at home. Um, so it was a fine time to be um, barely breaking even. And when you were touring, you were opening up for some, like, big acts, right? The B-52s, I believe, like, Debbie, Debbie Harry as well, right? Yeah, we uh, our first tour ever was uh, with Debbie Harry on her uh, Deaf, Dumb, and Blonde uh, solo album uh, tour. And then we went straight into the B-52s Cosmic Things tour, uh, or uh, Cosmic Thing. And that was right when they had Love Shack on the radio and on MTV, and um, and it was, it was huge. And we played some really... Really nice big shows with them. They were great. Uh, I, you know, can't thank them enough for bringing us out on the road when nobody knew who we were. And um, that, it just turned out to be a great thing. And a lot of people who come back and see us today uh, say that they saw us for the first time on that B-52s tour. We played almost, you know, we played a lot of colleges, a lot of big ballrooms, um, just some great shows with them. And it was, um, it was a great experience. When you open up for acts like that and people, you know, come see B-52s not expecting to see a band with a weird name that they never heard of, how do you kind of win them over? Like, how do you decide the playlist and, like, what songs really you should play to kind of, like, win over the crowd and get some new fans? You know, that was hard because we didn't feel like anything we had was suitable for, like, that kind of an audience. The B-52s is a really fun show. Um, you try to keep it upbeat, and you don't play a lot of slow songs. So for for those tours, we we looked at all of our material and said, okay, if it's upbeat, it's in the set, and if it's down tempo, it's out. Um, and then we just uh, went out there and did the best we could. And then uh, you know, like I mentioned before, Fear came out, and that was your biggest album at that at that point. All I Want, Walk on the Ocean, were those songs pretty like easy to write? Did you know that those would kind of be hits? Those, the music, actually, well, both of those songs were very, uh, happened very quickly. Um, All I Want uh, really came from a demo that Glenn had made um, on the weekend, and we came in on a Monday, and uh, Todd was just going through some tapes, and he found this song that Glenn had just, like, forgotten about or, or said, I, I don't like that. And Tom was listening through to everything, and he said, "What? What is this? This is a great, great chorus."
so um, we started working on it and um, and turned it into um, what you know what became all I want. Welcome the Ocean was the same way. Um, uh, we start we came in on a Monday and. Um, you know, Todd had this chord progression and, and the line Walk on the Ocean, and well, uh, we just couldn't get enough of it. It was one of those songs that we, we just played over and over again and never got sick of it. And um, it had a great, great feel, and um, we made a demo of it the first day that we played it, and Glenn wrote the words in about 10 minutes, um, just because didn't, he didn't want to sing yeah, 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 on the demo. <laughs> he didn't want to mumble his way through the demo, so he wrote words. And using that walk on the ocean idea, he had just gotten back from a, uh, a trip up to um, Washington State, uh, where he had spent some time on the coast, and he just um, he put all that into the song. And um, each of those uh, happened very quickly, just about a, about a day on each of them. Um, but all I want uh, almost didn't make the Fear record. People, it was really hard to finish. It was easy to start and hard to finish. Um, it had a ton of vocals. It had 12-string guitar, and there were some things about it that were out of tune and uh, that we had to fix. And um, some, you know, it, it, at times we felt that it was too pop, or it didn't, you know, it didn't sound like what we thought we should sound like. Um, but we kept at it and kept at it. And even the record company. I mean, it was the what? It was the third or the fourth single. I think it was easily the third single. Um, from fear, they didn't know it was a hit. Nobody knew that it was a hit. Um, so, uh, yeah, easy start, but long gestation, both uh, with the record company and and um, with us finishing those things. Um, Walk in the Ocean, we, we really went all out with the production. We got a, a string section to come in and play on it. We had accordions. You know, we had all of this ability to overdub that we had never had before because we were in a real studio and we could um, we could hire a string arranger and all those kind of good things that you can do when you have a record company behind you. So, um, yeah, that really good. Both turned out great. Yeah, and I absolutely, Walk in the Ocean is my favorite song by you guys. It's, it's such a unique song. And the first time you hear it, it's like it was nothing you've heard on the radio before at that point. We spotted the ocean the head of the trail Where are we going So far away Somebody told me This is the place Where everything's better And everything's safe Walk on the ocean
followed up with a song on the French soundtrack, uh, Good Intentions. Uh, was that song already made, or did they come to you asking for a song? That song was recorded during the sessions for Fear and left off the record because we thought it was too pop. Hmm, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so then we revisited it. It was our uh, Ron Oberman, our A&R man at the record company. It was his favorite song. In fact, he wanted to call the Fear album Good Intentions. If we had put... If we had put that song on the record, it might have been called Good Intention. It's hard to rely on my good intentions When my head's full of things that I can't mention It seems I actually get things right But I can't understand what I did last night Start to rely on my own good senses When I miss so much that requires attention I have to laugh at myself sometimes And I can't see that I'm not blind This little Yeah, and that uh, like 
compilation was great and light syrup there's a lot of you know really good songs on there as well oh thank you yeah that, that turned out great that was in light syrup was kind of like kind of a mixed cassette that i made of all of my favorite songs that had never made it on any of our albums and i was playing it in uh in the van one day on the way to a radio station and our manager said god this is great you know and and uh i, I said well we should put it out as an album and um and i i had this idea for i don't know i had i had been spending some time staring at cans of fruit <laughs> in my parents garage and i got this idea for in light syrup it was just like you know the 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 uh the idea of uh you know the band like our, our lyrics can be a little on the on the bitter side but i but here but the, but the sauce that's around it is is a sweet sauce right. so it's in light syrup yeah, I know it's it's. I love the album cover. It's definitely a cool name. Speaking of like bitter lyrics, um, I absolutely love the video. It's really original for "Something's Always Wrong," the whole oh, home, yeah. whole home shopping you know uh, network type video. Um, yeah. Was that your guy's idea? Or was that the record company's idea? The directors who came up with that? And then said, you know what, that's a really good idea. And then um, 
Glenn actually wrote the treatment with the director based on that idea. But, um, yeah, I thought it would be funny. Uh, the Home Shopping Network was really, really a big deal. Uh, uh, and we, you know, we, we watched it only to make fun of it. Um, right. Some of the, these pitch men and the products and things like that. And we thought it was silly. And um, if, if something seemed silly we, uh, and we thought it was right for parody, uh, we were all in. So we made that video. And uh, unfortunately at the time, um, MTV had just come out with their own sort of home shopping show that sold MTV pro like branded products and, 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 you know, shirts or whatever, hats. I don't know what it was. And our video ended up looking just like <laughs> that show. And so, um, it didn't get played as much as uh, we would have liked. Um, but, um, people who discover it today love it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely original. And, uh, Videos on MTV, that's kind of like a, a lost thing right now. <laughs> I know, I know, it certainly is. But um, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to make some uh, some uh, some cool ones. Yeah, and then unfortunately you guys broke, or I don't know if you broke up or just took a little break in uh, 1998. Um, what was the cause of the breakup? Um, you know, breakups happen, you know, when you're, when you're, you, you know, you're you're in close quarters and you're working on something. We had been through a bit of a of a disappointment where we had um, put a lot of effort into making an album called uh, Coil, Coil yeah. and it didn't um, didn't do as well as we would have liked. And um, you know, we were looking at the prospect of, of of going right back into the studio and doing that whole process again after we thought we had just made the best album we had we had made. Um, and it just got to be too much. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, what we, we got some bad advice too. Um, I've always said that we needed a break. We didn't need to break up. I mean, people, people wanted to make, you know, their own records. Glenn wanted to do a solo album. Um, I think people should have been allowed to do that while not breaking up the band and then you do that and then you come back to the band, you know, um, Mick Jagger went and made solo records, but right. the Rolling Stones never broke up. Right. You know that was just that was just silly and overly dramatic and unnecessary. Um, and thankfully, it was a short period of time. And you know, we we got back together and and we've been playing every year uh, since 2006 now. So I think we've been actually back playing together uh, now longer than we were together in the first place. Um, so obviously it was a it was a good breakup. We avoided, um, you know, any you know any kind of bad stuff that we could have, you know, stunts that we could have pulled back then. You know, never dragged each other around in any kind of press or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I guess it was I guess it was as good a breakup as you can have because we're still doing this um, today. Right, and it's pretty wild that you know it's the same four that started the band are still in the band now, and it's. You, you and Todd did Lapdog, Clint did his own thing. Yeah. So it's good that you got right. basically the core four, so to speak, you know, are still the driving force of the band. Yeah. Yeah, so now, right. um, yeah. I know. And we uh, we managed to stick it out this whole time, um, you know, with the four original guys. Um, we don't know if, if uh, you know, it's, it's up in the air as to whether Randy will be able to do the tour. He's been having some... Uh, 
some uh, physical uh, problems with his, uh, he's got a condition called OI, it's called osteogenesis imperfecta, and it manifests itself in different ways. When he was an adolescent, it meant that his bones were very brittle, and, um, and now it has manifested itself into really severe uh, tinnitus. Mm. So it's up in the air as to whether his, his, uh, his doctor will, um, will give him the okay. To, um, to to play the drums. I mean, it's it's not a good thing. Right. Many people have stopped, have had to stop touring because of that. I mean, Brian Johnson from ACDC, uh, Huey Lewis just uh, you know had to cancel a bunch of shows. It happens. Yeah, and hopefully it all works out. Randy, wish him the best. Yeah. Yeah. So then you guys, yeah, yeah finally released a, finally another album, New Constellation, twenty thirteen. Yeah. Yeah, uh, crowdfunded. I can say I, I contributed as well. Um, what was the sure? What was the thought process there? Um, we thought that our fans, in particular, would really go for the crowdfunding idea. We had been independent, and, um, and we had a, we had such a good deal when we were on Columbia. We we had um, such a good experience being able to make the record without any interference. Um, we just wanted to, um, we wanted to have complete control, creative control again. Um, and also, uh, gosh, there were so many good things about it. Um, we weren't sure whether just coming back together again after 16 years would be enough of a story, um, to get people's attention, um, out there in the, in the, uh, very, very overpopulated musical landscape. So if we could combine it with this Kickstarter campaign, which we had always done, you know, we, uh, we have, we've always involved our fans. We had a, a, a snail mail mailing list back in the old days um, because we thought we would never get played on the radio. We would have fans fill out postcards at the shows, drop them in a box. They would get a, they would get a flyer or a postcard with all the tour dates on it. We sent out uh, cassette singles at Christmas time with Christmas cards, and we sent out the demo version of Walk on the Ocean before the Fear album ever came out, so all the fans had already heard it. So we've always been involving um, our fans in, in the band, um, and we, this is just the next step uh, of that. And when we talk to people about what they liked most about, about the, uh, the crowdfunding, um, the new Constellation record, they liked feeling like they were participating in it. And that's what people have always uh, liked about this band. Um, and they, they feel like it's not just someone who's performing at them. It's a thing that they're participating in. Um, so it was really important for us to continue that. And crowdfunding uh, was just the next, the next level of it. And, um, and people got you know, really, really into it. It's still about the fifth or the sixth most successful Yeah, because you guys reached your goal fairly quickly. I believe it was like fifty thousand, right? And you guys almost yeah. tripled it or quadrupled it. it I think it was actually. Yeah, we did it. Uh, we started the campaign um, in when we were on the road, and it went live. And we had set a goal of we thought that we needed a minimum of fifty grand to uh, to put the record out, and we actually hit that in less than a day. Yeah, and we, we just didn't expect the level at which people would show up for this thing, but it seemed like our fans in particular were just so, you know, pumped for this. And 
you know, this wasn't just a pre-order. This was, you know, you could get handwritten lyrics. You could get a signed, you know, lithograph. You could, it was like a whole, it was bigger than just a record. And fans really loved participating in in the process and getting updates along the way and, you know, seeing the process that we were in. So, um, yeah, it was great. Yeah, are you guys uh, planning to do it again soon? We have no plans to do it again. I mean, we're talking about making new music, but um, these days, the way that uh, the way that things are out there, in you know, putting out an album, it's all about stretching out your story. These days, people who put out an album, you'll notice that they'll release three or four tracks ahead of time. It's all about drawing things out. You put out an album with 12 songs on it, and three months later, you need to come up with a new story. Um, so what we want to get into uh, is just recording new music, and hopefully we can get to the point where we can put out a new song every three months or so. Okay. It hasn't happened yet, but, I, <laughs> but, we're, but that's what we're trying to do. Right, yeah, we, we'll definitely look forward to that. And uh, last question, when did uh, yeah. the whole uh, Glenn performing barefoot, when did that start? right around the Fear album um, in 1991. Um, I, I, I don't know exactly what, what it was. I don't think it was a, it was a, a really conscious decision. Um, he just liked it because he could feel the buttons on his effect pedals uh, for the guitar uh, better. Um, and you know, certainly he doesn't do, he doesn't play barefoot at an outdoor show when right. it's cold. Right. Um, or when it's raining. Um, I, you know, it's, I think it became more of a thing for the fans than it did for, for him, because I don't even think he really thinks about it. Um, you know, he could walk out on stage with shoes on and, and people would be like, what the why are you barefoot? And it's like, oh, I forgot. It's <laughs> not like a conscious thing. Right. Uh, that's funny but um yeah yeah but dean thanks for a few minutes today i really appreciate it and uh, best of luck on the tour this summer thank you so much it was my pleasure and a special thanks to dean for joining us today you can follow the band on twitter at toe the wet sprocket their website's toe the wet sprocket.com if you want to follow me on twitter i'd appreciate it it's at the first null one nine Go to Facebook, you can like the page for Living My Youth. On iTunes, I have all the past episodes with all the amazing guests we've had. While you're there, you can go rate and review the show. If you don't have iTunes, totally fine. You can go to SoundCloud, you can go to Podbean, just search for Living My Youth. Once again, a special thanks to everyone who's listening. Can't do without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Living My Youth real soon.